Well, on Friday night, my family got the privilege of watching Felix Hernandez strike out 11 Oakland Athletics on, uh, on their way to a 6-4 victory. So it was pretty fun. And on a bonus, on top of all of that, it was Felix Hernandez like appreciation night or something like that. So um, the reason is for the past several seasons, Felix Hernandez has arguably been one of the most dominant pitchers in all of baseball. And that's probably why fans have given him the name King Felix. So we get to the game on Friday night, and since it was King Felix night, everybody got this King Felix yellow, bright yellow t-shirt, and the sign with the big K on it for strikeouts, and um, it's kind of fun, but a little bit strange. At one point in the game, all of the big screens lit up that said, all rise and hail King Felix. It was a little bit idolatrous, I want to say. Um, you've got 39,000 plus fans standing up in like some kind of worship liturgy, all chanting this stuff and raising their signs up. It's a little bit strange, but it got me to thinking, what is it about this kid from Venezuela that could get 39,000 plus fans out at the ballpark, standing in unison, wearing a tacky yellow shirt with his name on it, and going crazy. Why do we hail this kid king? Well, I think as, uh, as people, not just a culture, as people, as human beings, there's something that draws us about power. The world loves power. We love greatness. We love to recognize those who are excellent at their craft, whether it's a dancer or a singer or an author or a film star, whatever it is, we love excellence. And we especially love it when the best and brightest and most successful are on our team. Right? In the ancient and Greek and Roman world, kings were not born. They were made. Kings became kings because they were stronger and better leaders than other kings. And they took power... And when they took power, they used their power to keep their power until someone bigger and stronger came and took it from them. It had been a very long time since Israel last had a good king. But when Jesus began his public ministry, people took notice that he taught like no other teacher that they had ever heard. In fact, people began to say, he teaches like one who has authority and not like our scribes and Pharisees. And there was a buzz. Could this be the king? Jesus confronted powers of darkness by casting out demons. He had power over nature, calming storms with his voice, multiplying food, healing broken bodies. And people said, could this be the king? And Jesus rode into Jerusalem one day on the foal of a donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah predicted. And the people believed, at least some of them, this must be our king. On this Palm Sunday, we recognize that the people were right and they were wrong at the same time. They were right in the sense that Jesus is a king. Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the world. They were right. Jesus was fulfilling the prophets. And they were right. Jesus was the rescuer they had always been looking for. But they were very wrong in an important sense. Jesus was not like any king they had ever seen. He was not a king in the mold of their ancient kings with swords and armies. He was not the kind of king they were looking for, but he was the kind of king that they needed. And he's the kind of king 
that we need as well. This evening, we're going to focus on a passage that helps shed light on what kind of king Jesus really is. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 through 32. And it's significant that we're reading this passage on Palm Sunday, the Sunday we see Jesus coming in and hailed as king. This is the kind of king Jesus is. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him took the reed out of his hand and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him. And they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. Lord, we confess as we read this passage this does not fit the description of any kind of king um, we know well or any kind of king we would necessarily look up to. As the kind of king you are. And I'm so thankful for the good news in this passage that you are a loving and compassionate king king who is willing to give himself for us. And I pray that you would just open our hearts up to you today as we explore this passage, as we see you in it. Lord, help us to see ourselves in it too. For we need to be convicted and set straight. Thank you so much for your word. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for making it a word that is living, a word that brings uh, at the same time a word of comfort and a word of challenge. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reach each one of us with the word you have for us. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, For the past several weeks now, we've been rooted in Matthew's gospel, kind of following Jesus along in these last days and hours before his crucifixion and resurrection. And while these stories are primarily about Jesus, they, of course, shed a lot of light on humanity as well. Unfortunately, what we see at this stage in the story uh, are examples of human failure. So let me just run through a few that we've seen so far in the past few weeks. Jesus' disciples fail him in the Garden of Gethsemane when they fall asleep on three different occasions. Jesus is going through the hardest night of his life up to that point. And he's asked his three closest disciples, brothers, can you sit and pray with me? And three different times he finds them sleeping on the job. We see the failure of Judas, one of his disciples, as he betrays Jesus to the authorities. We then see the failure of human justice in this nighttime arrest of Jesus in the garden, illegal proceedings, 
and a conviction of an innocent man by Pontius Pilate. We see the failure of the temple leadership when Judas comes and repents of his sin of wrongly handing Jesus over and they dismiss him, not offering a priestly word of forgiveness and not acting on the information they now have that Jesus has been wrongly accused. And in all, it is safe to say that all spheres of humanity end up failing Jesus in these passion stories. His disciples fail him. His friends fail him. The aristocratic Jews fail him. The Jewish crowds and common people fail him. The aristocratic Romans fail him. And the common Romans fail him. And in fact, there's Roman cohorts who beats him and mocks him in the story we're looking at tonight is made up of, of men from all over the known world. So in essence, the whole world fails Jesus and is responsible for what has happened to him. This is Palm Sunday, right? So how do we explain the fact that the same crowds who were with Jesus on Palm Sunday, cheering him on to be their king, were the same people who then, less than a week later, are crying out, crucify him. And if they weren't in that crowd yelling, crucify him, they sure weren't there petitioning the authorities on his behalf. We have no record of anyone uh, standing up to Pilate, standing up to the chief priests and Pharisees. Crowds are fickle. More fickle than a Seattle sports fan, I say and when Jesus was confronted in the garden with the temple guard and he didn't retaliate with violence, all those who had hoped in Jesus being a king in the mold of worldly kings were disillusioned. In fact, it's hard to really imagine a better example of weakness than Jesus at the garden. Knowing he could call down legions of angels and allowing himself to be taken, allowing himself to undergo abuse and mockery and false trials. Far from being dominant and powerful, we see a cohort of Roman soldiers, and Matthew tells us that these soldiers stood over Jesus. You get this picture of them leering down at him. A cohort is 600 Roman soldiers. Matthew goes into great detail describing the physical and mental abuse Jesus took, the mockery, the beatings, and worst of all, he's alone. He's deserted. He's going through this without his friends, without his disciples. If anything, from a worldly perspective, this story is an example of Roman dominance and power. That's the point of the guards dressing Jesus up like a king. It's to humiliate Jesus. So they strip him naked. And they replace his clothes with one of their red capes. Which is why on Palm Sunday, one of the reasons we have the color red is symbolic. The Roman soldiers, the legionaries, wore red capes. They handed him a reed as a mock scepter. And they pr placed a crown of thorns on his head characteristic of Greek and Roman kings. In fact, you can think of the Statue of Liberty and her crown, how it flays out like this. That's because those uh, often kings would wear a crown of thorns sticking out. Um, but many of the stories have Jesus' crown being twisted together, so they're also digging in to his head. In all of this mockery, the soldiers are making the point that Caesar, obviously, is the true king. Rome was the superior power. 
And this is what Rome does to revolutionaries. Stop for just a minute and step outside the story with me for a second. Let's say you are a leader in the early church. Your name is Matthew. You deserted your master Jesus in the most difficult time of his life. And yet now you've witnessed the resurrection and you're writing a document of the life of Jesus trying to encourage people to come to faith in him. You're trying to encourage people who don't yet believe in Jesus to accept him as king. Why on earth would you add this story if you're trying to make a case for Jesus? In a world that values power and prestige and competence and effectiveness, why would you share all these unflattering stories about Jesus? Well, first, and maybe one of the most obvious reasons is because it actually happened this way. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you may not like writing about it, but if you really value honesty and truthfulness because you're a follower of Jesus, you can't lie when you're writing the story of Jesus, right? So that's one of the obvious reasons is that Matthew is writing down what actually happens. Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, God in the flesh, actually allowed this to happen to him because of his great love for the world. But second, and I think this is a very important reason Matthew adds this story. I think Matthew adds this story to help reveal to his listeners who Jesus really is. To show you what what I mean, I want to read to you uh, from a passage that is roughly 2,500 years old. It was written around 500 years before the story we're looking at here in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a story that's told by the prophet Isaiah in the 50th chapter of his book. So nearly 500 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, the nation of Israel was in captivity in Babylon. They had rebelled against God by repeatedly, not just a few times, but repeatedly oppressing the poor, neglecting the widows, leaving the fatherless on the streets rather than inviting them into their homes. They had repeatedly worshipped foreign gods. And God allowed Israel, because of their rebellion, to be conquered by the pagan kingdom of Babylon. But during this captivity, God continues to speak to the people. He sends different prophets, and right now we're looking at Isaiah. So he sends the prophet of Isaiah to come, and first of all, God always tells the people why he's judging them. He's like, listen, you've been neglecting all of these poor and powerless people, and you have been serving other gods. And I kept warning you, that's why you're in Babylon. But guess what? I want to give you hope. If you will just trust in me, I will rescue you. Just like I rescued Israel from Egypt in the first exodus, I will also begin a new exodus from Babylon. I will rescue you if you will just turn and trust in me. And Isaiah sets up this whole narrative like a trial scene. So it's like this. God is on trial, and there's Babylon, and there's Israel, and God is saying, bring your case against me. Israel, I am for you. If you just stand with me, I will rescue you from Babylon. And Israel is afraid they do not trust. And so eventually, through the prophet Isaiah, God makes this promise of rescue. 
and turns it from a rescue that is concrete in their day and age and begins to talk about this rescue in terms of a future rescue. Many years after their generation. And one of the ways Isaiah spoke of this future rescue was through a particular deliverer. And the way he speaks about this particular deliverer is he speaks about this deliverer as being his servant. A servant who would represent Israel. Since Israel had failed in their faithfulness, he would provide a servant who would not fail. A servant who would represent all of Israel in his faithfulness to God. This servant would do what Israel could not do. This servant would be obedient to God, even unto the point of suffering and death. This servant would ultimately bring rescue, not only to Israel, but to Israel plus the nations of the world. Now listen to one of the descriptions of this servant. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my f- face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Do you see why Matthew may have added this story of Jesus getting his back scourged and mocked and spit upon. I think Matthew is saying, look, Jesus is the servant we've been waiting for. He is the rescuer Isaiah was talking about. And of course, what no one could have guessed at that time is that this servant is none other than God himself. What an, what an amazing reality. What a king. A king like no other. Now, what's even more amazing to me is that Jesus knows what's going to happen to him before it happens to him. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, before he actually gets arrested, Jesus predicts that he is going to be arrested and mistreated and crucified. And on the third passion prediction, uh, we read this. This is from Matthew twenty seventeen through 19. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Not only does Jesus go through the passion, but he knows it's coming, and he still goes through it willingly, obediently, knowingly. So the question, as we enter this type of passage, is what does this really tell us about Jesus? What does this mean to us in the 21st century? 
Well, first thing, and I think the most obvious thing, is that Jesus identifies with the beaten down, with the oppressed. Jesus knows what it is to be at the mercy of political empire. He is helpless in the grinding machine of world politics. And there are many people all over the world right now who are pawns in dictators' games who really don't have any hope to better their situation, who are literally oppressed by tyranny and the political machine. He knows what it is to be treated unjustly, to go to court and have no expectation that you're going to get a fair trial. Millions of people live that way right now. That's not the way it is for most of us. But every one of us has had the experience of powerlessness. Some of us have felt powerless in the face of disease or injury that we never asked for, that was unfairly given to us. Jesus knows exactly what's that, what that is like. He has taken that pain on himself. Jesus knows what it is to be reduced in other people's eyes. To be looked down upon. To be dehumanized. For us, dehumanization often takes place innocently enough, although I don't think it's innocent at all, but often on the schoolyard when kids are trying to size each other up and we tear each other down with names and bullying. But dehumanization doesn't just end when you graduate school. That's, I think, what a lot of kids think. But it just gets more sophisticated. Uh, and in the workplace, there's the innocent, quote-unquote, jokes at the water cooler about the person who's the racial minority in the office or the woman you'd like to take out after work. Dehumanization takes place all the time in our culture to women in general who are not valued necessarily for their skills and experience, but are objectified ten times more than men in the media for their body parts. Jesus knows what it feels like to be looked at as an object of scorn, as less than human. He knows what it is to feel out of place, even when you're in your hometown. He knows what it feels uh, like to be isolated and alone and hated. And this is important because when you think that no one else understands that and you cry out in your heart, Jesus hears that and he identifies with it and he knows it and he's with you and he invites you to receive him and to trust him. Second, Jesus went through this suffering and ultimately death on a cross to rescue you and to rescue me. He went through this because every one of us, every one of us, has a heart that is in some way, shape, or form corrupted by sin. We look at what these soldiers did to Jesus, and it ought to give us a gut-turning reaction. It is absolutely horrifying, especially if you put yourself in his shoes, or you put yourself in that situation. But if you have a love for Jesus, or at least a, a fiber of uh, identifying with someone who's innocent going through all of this, is just 
it's torturous to even think about. Mocking and beating and absolute beastly behavior towards another person. And yet, history tells us again and again that lurking within every human being is the potential for a beast to come out. If you were to interview people in Germany before uh, Hitler came to power, the people that ended up being soldiers of Hitler and complicit in the extermination of millions of Jewish people, and you were to say, could you ever see yourself being part of a group that exterminates people by the millions? No. No. And yet, in the right circumstances, the beast can come out. Think of it like this. I was in the Coast Guard for seven years, and during that time, I met people from every branch of the service, had beers, had coffee with them, lots of nice people. In fact, most of them, really great people, and really normal people, people that are sons and daughters of somebody, many of them who have sons and daughters, many of them who have wives or husbands or boyfriends or girlfriends. Some even had grandkids at that stage uh, and later on in their career. And if you were to ask one of them at a low-key setting over coffee or dinner, hey, could you ever see your, imagine yourself uh, humiliating and abusing a prisoner or abusing or, or killing civilians? I mean, they, unless they had a severe mental illness. Absolutely not. Of course not. That's not what we do. But how then do we explain time and time again Guantanamo and Iraq and Afghanistan and reports of prison abuse and killing of civilians and not only by American soldiers but all over the world this happens in in times of occupation. I believe that part of the reason that the beast has come out in those areas is because of the misuse of soldiers and airmen and sailors. Our nation's armed forces exist to protect us and to fight wars. And the Talking about the the justice of war in general is a completely different topic, but I ask you to stick with me uh, for this example. In a war, you are supposed to know your enemy. There are rules of engagement. There are enemy soldiers and military targets, and even the most, I don't know, corrupt countries know that you're not supposed to just try and kill civilians. There are rules of engagement. But what happens when we force our soldiers who are trained to fight wars to be police officers in occupied territory? What happens when we force them uh, to be police as an occupying force overseas? Well, this is what happens. The locals form pockets of resistance. And all of a sudden, a simple drive down the street for an occupying army becomes an opportunity to have your Humvee blown up. Soldiers walking down the street become targets of snipers and suicide bombers and child soldiers. And all of a sudden, you can't tell a terrorist from a woman walking down the street. You can't tell a child soldier from the kids playing at the playground. You can't tell a suicide bomber from an elderly man walking down the street towards you. It is a living hell. Your body, your mind, your emotions are in a constant state of alert such that you are constantly exhausted. And you begin to hate the people around you. And whether it's Baghdad or Kabul or Vietnam or North Korea, and let's say one day one of your friends is killed by a suicide bomber. 
And the next week, your unit captures bin Laden. I know he's already gone. Uh, but the next big terrorist leader. And they get that leader behind closed doors where there's no cameras. And he's got a death sentence anyway. It's going to be next week. Can you imagine an altered state and all of that hatred coming out? Roman legionaries were the world's elite fighting force for hundreds of years. Trained soldiers. They were used to huge battles in the open field. Their discipline, their weaponry, their training, second to none. But let's say one day you're part of that army and you get a new assignment. You're told you're going to Palestine. It's the home of this stubborn people called the Jews. Don't they know Jesus? Or don't they know Caesar is Lord? Don't they know the Roman gods are superior to their one God? Obviously, the Roman gods are superior because Rome is in charge of Palestine. You miss your family back home, and these Jews are so arrogant. They keep talking about their one true God and how your gods are false, fools, and worse yet. There are these terrorist groups all over town. This one group called the Sakari, the Daggermen, killed your best friend last week. And today, by the grace of the gods, the head usurper is delivered up to your cohort. Some guy named Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Who's from Nazareth? He claims to be the king of the Jews. He must be the head revolutionary. I'll show him who's really king. So these Roman soldiers look at Jesus as the representative for all their hatred and all their fears and their prejudice. And they see in him all the rebels against Rome and they mock him and beat him and dress him up like a false king. And what they don't know, what they can't know at this stage is that he really is the king. He's not only the king of the Jews from Nazareth. He's the king of the world from heaven. And what they don't know is that in a few hours from then, Jesus would not be going to the cross because of them, but for them. What they couldn't know is that Jesus was crucified not because of their power, but because of the condition of their hearts. He was going to the cross for all of us, who harbor deep inside and sometimes not so deep inside hatred and fear and resentment. He went to the cross for those of us whose lives have never been uh, challenged enough to bring out the worst in us. But we know, don't we, that the worst is in there. That's the kind of king we have. A compassionate king, a king who suffers for and with us and offers us new life. That is the type of king we have in Jesus. So we see how Jesus brings good news to those who are suffering and oppressed. We see how Jesus brings good news for those who are repentant of their sinful hearts. And that would be enough. But that's not it. In the last part of tonight's story, Jesus has been so beaten and so weary that he can't manage to carry the crossbeam of his own cross. 
So the Roman soldiers, as they come out on the path on the way to Golgotha, press a man. They just pick this guy, Simon, who's from Cyrene, uh, Cyrene which is modern-day Libya. They, they press him into service. And I hear an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Well, the Roman soldiers press this Simon, uh, Simon of Cyrene into service. Now, Jesus has been betrayed by his disciple Judas, falsely accused by his own countrymen, unjustly convicted and abused by the Roman government, and abandoned by his disciples. But where Simon Peter is nowhere to be found, Simon of Cyrene is called out from a crowd to carry the cross of Jesus. Simon gets to do what I think many of us would love to do. Be there for Jesus in one of his weakest moments. He's done so much for us. And he's so capable. I mean, he's God. What do you get? What gift do you give the person who has everything, right? But here's one instance where Jesus was needy. And God, sometimes I think about, I would love to be there to carry that cross. But barring a time machine, there's really no way to go be what Simon was for Jesus. And yet there is a way that we can serve Jesus. In Matthew 25, Jesus claims that when we serve the poor, the naked, the prisoner, basically, when we serve those who can't serve us back, we serve him. We do those things unto Jesus. Whenever we serve the least or when we seek the lost and share the good news with them, we do that for Jesus. Some of you are here feeling oppressed, feeling crushed by whatever's going on in your life. Today, your response to this passage might just be to come to know that Jesus is there with you, walking with you, holding you up. If you're here today, he's holding you in some way. Some of you are here today keenly aware of your sin nature. You've recognized yourself in the betrayers and in the soldiers, in the hatred and the bigotry. You've come face to face maybe with that beast that you're pretty good at suppressing, but it's come out recently. You might need to come to Jesus to know that he knows and that he died for you anyway and that you're forgiven. And some of you might be just sitting there overwhelmed with joy, wondering how you should respond in authentic worship for a Jesus who would do all of this. And the text offers us Simon of Cyrene, cross-bearer of Jesus. How might you come alongside someone else in need this week? How might you help bear the cross of another and in so doing bear the cross of Jesus? Pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you for being the kind of king you are. You are the Son of God. You could be however 
you want. You could be completely evil and tyrannical and you would still be God and we would still have to obey you and live in your world. Oh, thank you that you are good, that you are great, that you are the kind of king who lays his life down for us and offers us new life. What a grace it is to know you, the king. Holy Spirit, I pray for your help in responding to this good news. I pray that it wouldn't go in one ear and out the other that you would help us to realign our lives as we trust Jesus.